Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. I miss your face, Janelle. <laughs> Aww. Aww. What they discovered upon their arrival was almost unspeakable. We are all people. We are some form or another. The dead won't bother you. It's the living you gotta worry about. Something if I couldn't keep them there with me whole, I, at least I felt that I could keep uh, their skeletons. Hello and welcome to the Bad Taste Crime Cast. I'm Vicky. And I am Janelle. And we are coming to you from quarantine um, in our respective City homes. USA. <laughs> <Yeah>. Quarantine <laughs> USA. <laughs> yes. Mm-hmm. Um, we're doing our part to social distance here uh, in Illinois. It's weird. <laughs> yeah, we're on lockdown. Yeah, Lock we were down. just, <laughs> just <laughs> talking about um, how strange it is to not be recording in the actual studio. Yeah, I don't know where uh, to look. <laughs> I know. Right now, I'm just staring at the audio forms on my computer. I never have to look at this stuff, but... Yeah, I'm staring at the sliver are. of the open door so I can see the light coming from the window. <laughs> the hope I know, of I the actually, outside. <laughs> I'm sitting like there's an, a window right next to me, and it's actually super sunny out and very nice. And um, I don't know. It's We're inside recording as we normally are on these days. I'm going to have to take a walk later just to like get the heebie-jeebies out. I was just <laughs> thinking that. Although my second thought was, I kind of want to take a nap when we're done. <laughs> <laughs> I have to go and record a video for work today. So I'm going to have oh to my take like, a, a mental break in between this. <laughs> Yeah. Um, but don't worry, guys. We're not going to be talking about quarantine today because that is no, plain God, old. no. <laughs> We're done with that for now. Yeah, no more. Um, we do have a great episode for you, as always. If this is your first time listening, a special hello to you. What a great and time to be joining us. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What a horrible <laughs> decision you just made. <laughs> um, but first, let's head over to the newsroom. This week in the news, we are going to Australia. I lied. We are going to talk about quarantine a little bit. Um, oh, God. 
mainly because a reporter with uh, Vice named Mahmoud Fazal did an interview. He had an interesting idea and thought, you know, I wonder how this lockdown, because of course, um, at the time of recording, Australia was just entering stage three lockdown. And yeah, he was, we're, we're a bit behind. <laughs> yes, uh, you could say that. Yeah. Um, and one of the things he wanted to find out was how is this affecting our criminal uh, element in the world? And so he got in touch with somebody who goes by the name Rob, which is just very basic. He's burglar. Yeah. <laughs> well, he's he's a burglar. Gotcha. Rob and, the robber. <laughs> Rob the robber. Yeah. And so he wanted to find out how is this affecting your like burglary career? Ooh. If you could call it a career. I'll have to tell you yeah, a so story this- after this. <laughs> oh, boy. Mm-hmm. Oh, no. Yeah. Um, so he calls him up. It does this really great interview um, where he asks, what are you doing now that everyone's at home? And Rob says, I just put on my high vis gear and walk into people's backyards with my tools. And if someone pulls me up, I just say I must have the wrong house and I'm on my way. There's heaps of places that are empty late in the afternoon. People are out and about. Also, I've been forced to break into people's cars for change and whatever I can find. I know it's not the right thing to do. And I know all the bullshit that I'm on the gear and it's my fault. I've been nicked too many times to get a job. I've even tried selling gear and got ripped off and bashed. Um he was asked what his biggest score was since the lockdown started, and he said credit cards and cars mostly that he uses to buy vouchers and cigarettes. So, uh, and he also was asked if the lockdown had made him more uh, reckless, mm-hmm. as in possibly going to burglarize things like gas stations or supermarkets. Oh, yeah. Um, but he kind of says they don't really keep much in the till like anymore. Mm-hmm. It's just a couple couple hundred bucks, and it's not really worth it. But also, and this is interesting, he says, some blokes I know have done some really stupid shit, but it's mainly to (laughs) other crims, as in criminals, obviously. Um, (laughs) No one wants to fuck over a family and kick them when they're down, and I don't either. Sometimes you get really sick and feel like the world's jumping on your head, and you turn into this other greedy person and find yourself going through someone's drawers. It's horrible shit. I've tried begging, but I feel bad because I'm not homeless. So... You know, I mean, criminals have a little bit of a heart, I think. <laughs> Kinda. Um, At least he's like, I'm I'm not trying to fuck over another family. I mean, obviously, everybody's in the same situation. I'm not trying to fuck over another family uh, while this is all going on. So, like, there's something to be said for, for that. I mean, I that's, guess. you know, Australian criminals. <laughs> a criminal in a land <laughs> of criminals. But... Yeah, it's yeah. funny that you brought that up because the other day we were like hanging out in our living room and um, across the street they have uh, ADT and okay. their house alarm started going off in the middle of the night. Oh, no. <laughs> like bright lights flashing the whole nine yards. Really? And then about a few minutes later, the police came down the street with a spotlight and was putting it in people's yards and i have a really big front window yeah so you could see like the whole spotlight illuminated our front um front living area and um yeah i was like oh man what a time to try to break into somebody's house but that house is a rental and it's pretty notorious there is a drunk lady who lives around here somewhere who likes to walk into people's houses 
Really? I have a feeling it was pro- yeah, I have a feeling it was probably her. Oh my god, <laughs> really I had criminal. no idea. <laughs> wow. Yeah, it's real wild over here on this side of town. <laughs> well, and so this thought was the reason I picked this article is because there are things that um about this that have not really occurred to me. Like yesterday we were outside and saw a plane fly over and it was like, what's that plane doing up there? You know, and it had not occurred to me until somebody else pointed it out. This is one of those things that's like, okay, so everybody's staying home and the people who normally make all of their money doing burglaries of like people's houses when they're say gone at work are not going to be doing that because everybody's home. Yeah. You know? Or they're going to, you know, unfortunately have to burglarize people's homes who are considered, you know, essential workers, which makes it right a thousand times worse. Oh, you're going to burglarize a nurse's house. Cool. Way to go. Yeah, right. Talk about kicking people when they're down. Jeez. God. Yeah. I um, Almost my entire family, like all the other women in my family are all healthcare workers to some degree. Yeah. So my sister still has to work. My sister-in-law is my mother. They all have, they're all essential workers. I'm the only one who's over here like closed up. So it's real rough. Like we can't, we can't see each other for Easter or anything. We have to like video chat. Right. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, so as our news, we're going to move on to Netflix and kill, (laughs) which is all we've been doing at this. I know we normally (laughs) is Netflix. Right. I, I know we normally talk about stuff that is already out that we've watched, but because we are consuming content at such a high rate, I kind of want to look forward a little bit to stuff that is going to be coming out to try and keep you guys entertained. (laughs) Something to look forward to. Mm -hmm. So today I want to talk about The Innocence Files, which I am very excited about. It's a docuseries coming out on Netflix. It covers eight cases of wrongfully accused inmates and their journey to be released. It also covers some of the history and methods used by the Innocence Project, which is an organization started in 1992 by Peter Newfield and Barry Sheck at Cardoza School of Law. According to the Innocence Project, more than 2,500 wrongfully convicted people have been exonerated in the U.S. over the past three decades. And this series in particular looks at three different causes of wrongful convictions, prosecutorial misconduct, eyewitness misidentification, and the use of unreliable or unvalidated forensic science, which is one of our personal favorites here. Oh, yes. I love junk science so much. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Um, It's a love-hate relationship. (laughs) Yeah. That was a tinge of sarcasm on the end of that. (laughs) Yeah, right. Uh, it covers various cases, including that of Chester Holman III, Kenneth Winnemco, uh, Win- yes. Alfred Dwayne <laughs> Brown. Yeah. It's even worse when we're doing this separately because <laughs> I can't see your facial expressions. It's crazy. Um, Thomas Hainsworth, Frankie Carrillo, LeVon Brooks, Kennedy Brewer, and Keith Howard. It's a nine-part docuseries that premieres on April 15th. So it'll be, by the time this episode comes out, it will have been out for like three or four days. Um, So I'm very excited about this because I love the Innocence Project as an organization. I think they do mm-hmm. really, really good work. We've seen quite a few exonerations here in Illinois because, sadly, Illinois has one of the higher rates of wrongful convictions, unfortunately. Yeah. At at least in the U.S. Um, But it's called The Innocence Files. Like I said, it'll be out on April 15th. So check that out if you need something when you're done watching Tiger King, when you're done watching How to (laughs) Fix a Drug Scandal. 
Yeah, this will be your done next one. With everything. I'm so glad that they decided to release some stuff early, too. I heard that they were uh, releasing stuff early in all of April because of all of the shit that's happening. Yeah, there's been a lot of a lot of fast tracking of some of these uh, series because obviously it's like you want people to consume the content at a higher rate while they're sitting at home, you know? Yeah. Looks good on the numbers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So this is that part of the show where we say content may not be appropriate for all listeners. Uh, I don't know about you, but my story today is especially uh, brutal. Mine's not. Mine's a little political, so I hope you're prepared. Ooh, <laughs> I'm excited about that. Mm-hmm. Mine, there's definitely going to be um, discussions of rape and torture and murder. And it's like, it was. I even had to take a couple of breaks writing it because it was just oh, God. Uh, <laughs> pretty intense. Dude, I can't take a break on like making people just feel real sad. I know. At least we'll end it on like a... A fun note, mine doesn't actually have any murder in it. Wow. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Um, Okay, so with that, we're going to go ahead and jump into today's episode, which is the FBI's most wanted list. Oh, man, we need to get some fucking John Walsh background music. (laughs) (laughs) I know. And of course, when you say the FBI's most wanted list, most people think of America's most wanted, Mm -hmm. um, which has helped to catch a lot of people on the FBI's most wanted list. It's typically 10 people, and it's kind of a rotating um, list of people as people are caught or uh, die or are presumed dead or, you know, various other things. Mm-hmm. It's it's always out there. You can go to like I, th- I think it's FBI.gov and see what the current list is. It's not always people f- that are on there for murder. Sometimes right. it's fraud. Sometimes it's you know it's I, it's various things. Mm-hmm. But um, there's a whole process of how people can within the agencies can submit. Uh, essentially candidates to be placed on this list that's really interesting uh so we're gonna be looking at some of the cases of people who are caught off of the fbi's most wanted list starting with christopher wilder aka the beauty queen killer Ooh, this sounds interesting yeah, and this is crazy and one that I have never heard of personally. I was very shocked because it's fucking brutal. Yeah. And just and just insane. <laughs> yeah, so so prepare yourself. Oh man. Okay. I think I need my wiener dog to hold. <laughs> oh boy. Yeah, I have an emotional support dog, so that's positive. <laughs> oh, you're lucky. That's I what I need. Do you have an emotional support like stuffed animal? Maybe there you go. I guess not. I'll share. I'll share my no. wiener with you. <laughs> Ooh, okay. My, my wiener dog. Oh, 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 I was gonna say, <laughs> man, that's not an offer I've had since quarantine started. Hey, oh, just kidding. <laughs> um. <laughs> Okay, on that note, uh, Christopher Wilder was born in Australia in 1945 to an American naval officer and his Australian wife. In his early childhood, um, it, it was marked by a few significant events. Uh, he almost died during childbirth. 
Oh. And at the age of two, he had another near-death experience when he nearly drowned in a swimming pool. So not a great start. There's some karma trying to really happen right there. Like early, like pre-karma, early like karma. Like they knew, like we need to take this smoke out. <laughs> uh, his extensive crime record started in his teenage years when he was arrested for a gang rape between 1962 and 1963, for which he was sentenced to counseling and mandatory shock therapy. Oh, that's never good. Well, and even in the 60s, I, don't, I, I guess I didn't realize that they were still doing shock therapy in the 60s. I always oh, imagine yeah. that as like a like a 40s, 50s old mental hospital kind of thing. That I, they still have shock treatment. It's voluntary now. <laughs> it's not mandatory. Oh, but you can still really. Yep. That is there's people that swear by it. I was gonna say that's kind of crazy because I don't I'm trying to think but um I don't remember seeing anything that that was like a proven method of psychiatric treatment. Yeah, there's people who swear that it helps them. That is, it's, that's wild. It's yeah. Yeah. It's, it's nutso. <laughs> so after being sentenced to this counseling and mandatory shock therapy, a couple of year late, years later, he was back in trouble again when he was found extorting sex from a nursing student. You're going to start to see a pattern here. Just, I mean... Hmm. It's, yes. it's, it's, <laughs> yes, you will start to see a pattern here. Um, at the age of 24, Wilder left Australia for the sunny shores of Florida, where he became quite successful in the construction industry, affording him all the comforts of modern life, including a seaside home in Boynton Beach, a speedboat, and a high powered sports car that he raced in professional competitions. Oh, yikes. <laughs> he was quite the, they describe him as quite the, uh, like, 1960s, 1970s playboy. Mm. There was also mentions of some swinging, perhaps. Yeah, it was the time for that. I feel like especially with and rich people. And, of course, Florida. <laughs> also, yeah, and also Florida. <laughs> yeah. When it said he moved to Florida, I was like, of course he did. <laughs> From one armpit of the world to the other. Aww. <laughs> Aww. <laughs> Australia is beautiful. Well, Australia is beautiful, but also started as a prison continent. So exactly. let's not That's, forget about that. You know? Yep. <laughs> also, they have huge, scary as fuck spiders. So fuck that. They do. All of Ugh. everything is out to kill you there. That's why it was a prison. <laughs> Around this time in the early 70s, Wilder took an interest in photography, if only to help him continue his criminal escapades. In 1971, he was arrested for attempting to solicit women to pose for nude photographs, but managed to escape with only a fine. That was a very common thing back then. Just a fine? Yeah. Just, wait, getting away with a fine or soliciting people for uh, nude photographs? Soliciting people for nude photographs. It was real. It was a real problem. Yeah, this is back when people had a lot of trust in strangers. Yeah, too much. <laughs> too Way too much. As trust no see. one. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> uh, a couple of years later, Wilder was arrested for forcing an underage girl to perform oral sex. Classy. Yes, exact. Totally. 
While he tried at all costs to get some sort of bargain, the case indeed went to trial and he was eventually acquitted. Again, a few years later in 1980, Wilder was arrested for posing as a modeling agent, luring a teenage girl into his car and raping her. But God damn it. Due to various things like the victim refusing to testify and some extensive plea bargaining, Wilder managed to again get off with only probation and psychiatric care, most of which never seemed to really help. And this is what you're going to see a lot, unfortunately. Yeah. In 1983, Wilder took a trip back to Australia to visit his parents. And while he was there, he abducted two 15-year-old girls and again, in, like I said, what you could call a pattern, forced them to pose for pornographic pictures. He was charged with kidnapping and indecent assault and what seemed to be finally Lady Justice catching up with him, but... His family posted his $350,000 bail and Wilder was allowed to return to Florida to await trial. Big mistake. Big, big mistake. Especially for somebody who is uh, pretty, pretty wealthy, I would say. Yeah, too much trust in criminals back in the day. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Either he knew that the walls were slowly closing in on him or he just totally lost it because when he returned to Florida, he began a spree of torture, rape and murder that would last for six weeks. His first strike was at the Miami Grand Prix where Rosario Gonzalez, who was working as a spokesmodel handing out aspirin samples was last seen. I'm sorry. What? Yeah. So, and this, I think, again, used to be way more common back in the day, but they would have, for any product, they would just have, like, spokesmodels show up at events where there's going to be tons of people and hand out samples. Aspirin samples. I feel like in this time period, people knew what aspirin did and were pretty, like, that's... Yeah, and I think (laughs) now you see it more commonly with things like alcohol. Like, you go to a bar and there's some girl in a tank top handing out, like vodka samples or whatever or red bull like you see it a lot with energy drinks too for for some reason there's definitely a demographic they're going for (laughs) oh yeah totally um so same thing except with aspirin that also caught me off guard i was like ridiculous aspirin samples (laughs) have you ever heard of aspirin well let me tell you Uh, so this was the last place where Rosario Gonzalez was seen. Wilder had been at the raceway racing his 310 horsepower Porsche 911. Only a month later, uh, Miss Florida finalist and former girlfriend of Wilder, Elizabeth Kenyon, also di- disappeared. Neither woman has been found, although Wilder has been connected to both following subsequent investigations, specifically an investigation by a private investigator hired by one of the families looked into this. The local newspapers began reporting on the disappearances, saying that a Boynton Beach race driver was wanted for questioning. Now, obviously, getting the hint that they were on to him, Wilder packed up his car withdrew $50,000 from his bank account and took off to evade arrest. On March 18th, Wilder lured 21-year-old Teresa Waite Ferguson from the Merritt Square Mall in Merritt Island, murdering her and leaving her body at Canaveral Groves. Ferguson's body would be discovered on March 23rd. 
Wilder wouldn't be heard from until two weeks later when in Tallahassee, Florida, 19-year-old Linda Grover was approached by a man with a camera claiming to be a talent agent. God damn it! (laughs) (laughs) Giving photographers a bad name. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Well, it's like any guy with a camera. At that point in time, everybody was trying to be a model. They did a lot of stuff in malls. And like any guy with a camera was like, this guy's a legit photographer. There's still people who do that. Like I have been I know. asked to model for photographers and I I know when someone is not legitimate. When you're like, Oh yeah, do you have a sample of your work or a website or anything? No. Okay, well then no. <laughs> yeah. You creep. Jeez. Yeah, no. <laughs> uh Wilder was able able to lure Grover to his car where he knocked her out tied her hands, wrapped her in a blanket, and put her in the trunk of his car, and then drove to Bainbridge, Georgia. At the Glen Oaks Motel, Grover was tortured by Wilder, first by supergluing her eyes shut, using copper wires to electrocute her feet, and raping her. Oh my god. Yeah, it was like, holy shit. At some point, Grover did manage to get away, and she locked herself in the bathroom, where she screamed and pounded on the walls so loud that Wilder fled. Grover did eventually make it into uh, like where the front desk was at of the motel and had them call 911. Authorities came through. Later, Grover was able to identify Wilder through pictures. So that's good that at least they have an identification on the monster that super glued her eyes shut because that's fucking horrible. Yeah, but you know how police departments go. They don't talk to each other. It's going to be like swept under the rug or something stupid. It's true. And I will say that eventually this does cross state lines. And so the FBI very quickly becomes involved, Um, which is a plus because one single agency coordinating everything else is like, ideal. From Georgia, Wilder left and next appeared in Beaumont, Texas, where he again tried his modeling bit on 23-year-old Terry Walden, who very quickly turned on his offer. And at this point, he had let her be. But when the two ran into each other again two days later, Wilder kidnapped her. According to later pathology reports, while her body was found fully clothed, Walden had been bound with various types of rope, gagged with duct tape, and stabbed several times, although there wasn't any evidence of a sexual assault. Following the murder of Walden, Wilder dumped her body in a canal and fled in her 1981 Mercury Cougar to Oklahoma City. On March 25th, Wilder continued his insane spree with the abduction of 21-year-old Suzanne Logan from the Penn Square Mall. From there, Wilder transported Logan to Newton, Kansas, where he checked into an inn. The following day, they drove to a reservoir in New Junction City, Kansas, where Logan was stabbed to death and discarded. According to later autopsies, Logan had been found with some of her clothing removed and her face badly bruised. Her pubic hair had been shaved and her hair chopped off. She had been raped before being murdered. And both Terry Walden and Suzanne Logan's bodies were discovered on the exact same day. Which is just, like, sort of wild to me. Yeah. Because they were in two different states. Mm Mm-hmm. 
Wilder next popped up in Grand Junction, Colorado, where he kidnapped 18-year-old Cheryl, Cheryl Bonaventura, again coercing her with offers of modeling jobs. The two were seen together at a diner in Silverton, where they mentioned they were heading to Las Vegas. They were later seen together at the Four Corners Monument before checking into another motel in Page, Arizona. Unfortunately, Bonaventura met the same fate as all the other women and around March 31st was shot and stabbed to death before being left near the Kanab River in Utah. Her body would not be discovered until May 3rd. So we're talking months later. Yeah. Wilder's next target was 17-year-old Michelle Korfman, who he had spotted at a 17 magazine fashion show in Las Vegas, <laughs> Nevada on April 1st. That sentence <laughs> takes me back. 17 magazine. <laughs> well, and interestingly enough, um, you can Google, if you uh, Google his name, uh, you can see a photo. There was somebody else there had captured a photo of him like sitting, watching the models come down the runway to like, oh, wow. so like he was indeed at this, this photo shoot in, um, for Seventeen magazine, this fashion show in in Las Vegas, which is just kind of like spooky. Again, using the same tactic of offering photo shoots and modeling contracts, Wilder was able to lure Korfman away to murder her, as he had done with all the others, leaving her body near a Southern California rest stop to be discovered on May 11th. On April 3rd, the FBI placed Christopher Wilder on the ten most wanted list. Um, so he had been at this for. Uh, a couple of weeks, it didn't take very long for them to put him on the list because obviously he was going state to state to state, just like leaving a massacre trail on his way. Which, of course, at this time, you know, again, nobody's going to really start connecting them right away because why wouldn't they? (laughs) Right, right, yeah. Wilder then went from Nevada to Torrance, California, where he photographed 16-year-old Tina Marie Rossico before kidnapping and raping her. This time, however, Wilder decided to keep Rosico hostage and forced her to help him lure other girls. And so, with Rosico still alive, she and Wilder traveled to Maryville, Indiana. There at South Lake Mall, Wilder forced Rosico to aid in the abduction of 16-year-old Donette Wilt. He then made Rosico drive to New York while he raped Wilt several times in the car, which is like That's crazy. horrifying. Yeah. And it's interesting. I mean, obviously, she was going along with this um, for fear of her life. I don't by any means put blame on her um, for any of this happening. But she talked about in interviews later that she felt like she dealt with Wilder um, well enough because she herself had kind of a troubled childhood. She had suffered a lot of abuse and even some sexual abuse when she was younger. Mm-hmm. And so to her, it was like, I want to say it was easy to deal with him, but um, she had some extra skills, I guess, to mm-hmm. deal with such a traumatic situation. Yeah, she had some coping mechanisms already in place. Exactly. When they arrived in Rochester, New York, Donette was again raped and tortured. When Wilder realized that there was even more media being put out actually using his name and his photograph, he and the girls uh, went out into the woods near Penyan, where he attempted to strangle Wilt to death. 
She struggled enough that this was unsuccessful. And so instead, he stabbed her twice and then left her for dead. Or so he thought. Wilt was actually still alive. And she was pretending to be dead until Wilder had left, which I was like, kudos to you, girl. Fucking smart. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. That's that fight or flight mechanism, like quick thinking. Oh, yeah. So she waited until he left. Uh, She then tied a pair of jeans around herself to kind of stop some of the bleeding and eventually found somebody to take her to the hospital where she had life-saving surgery and survived. Wow. Police, of course, then went to take a statement and Wilt told them that Wilder and Rosico were headed to Canada. So it's some of these women that he's meeting are not necessarily... um, dying or or you know what i mean like they're Mm -hmm. able to give some reports and so they're sort of able to track where he was going yeah but as another but (laughs) um as there so often is before he made an attempt at escaping the country he decided he had time to take one more girl hostage and i know and headed to the eastview mall in victor new york There, he found 33-year-old Beth Dodge, who he forced into his car and had uh, Rosico get into Dodge's Trans Am and follow them. They drove to a deserted gravel pit where he forced Dodge out of the car, shooting her in the back. There, he left the Mercury Cougar that they had been driving and hopped into the newly acquired Pontiac. Then... In an interesting move, before taking off to Canada, Wilder drove Rosico to the Boston airport and purchased her a ticket home back to L.A. Oh. In an interview following the ordeal ordeal that Tina Marie Rosico uh, did, she said, quote, he knew he was too close to being killed and that he didn't want her to die with him. She also said that, quote, he told me to kiss him on the cheek. He said, all you got to do, kid, is write a book and then walked away. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Yeah. So I don't know if Wilder felt some kind of connection sort of with Tina Marie Rosico, but Mm -hmm. it's it's like weird that she was the only one that he purpose one that he purposely kept alive, but also like actively helped her to get home it's just strange that is really weird wilder did attempt one final abduction on his way to canada of course of course can't stop won't stop (laughs) can't stop won't stop uh when he spotted a 19 year old girl on the side of the road whose car had broken down he pulled over offered to take her to a gas station but when he drove past the station she decided something wasn't right and so she waited for him to reach a point where he had to slow the car down a little bit and then jumped from the car escaping virtually without any harm he then drove to a service station in colbrook new hampshire which is approximately 12 miles from the canadian border and he was spotted by a couple of state troopers leo jellison and wayne fortier because he was acting suspicious and possibly because they had recognized him from the fbi posters They decided to approach Wilder, who immediately jumped into his car to grab his gun, which was a Colt Python 357 Magnum. Mm -hmm. There was sort of this like scuffle and fight that started and two shots rang out, one entering Wilder and exiting out of his back into Trooper Jellison and one going into Wilder's chest. Um, Trooper Jellison did survive. He was... uh, 
pretty wounded, but he managed to pull through. I've also seen some speculation that Wilder had shot himself on purpose, while other places say that the gun went off on accident during the scuffle. I could honestly see either way. Yeah. It definitely wouldn't be the first time that, like, in a, a fight with police that a gun just went off, you yeah. know? Mm-hmm. At any rate, uh, the bullets that Wilder took ended his life and his crime spree. Wilder died on Friday the 13th. <laughs> How fitting. Which I'm just like, man, that is, like, the unluckiest man in the entire world to die on Friday the 13th. Um he was on the FBI's most wanted list for 10 days, but the entire crime spree lasted 47 days in total. Mm-hmm. Now, Wilder is actually a suspect in a few other murders and disappearances, including the 1984 disappearance of 15-year-old Colleen Orsborn, the unsolved Wanda Beach murders in Australia, the disappearance of 17-year-old Mary Oplitz, the 1982 discovery of skeletal remains in Loxahatchee, Florida, the disappearance and murder of 20-year-old Sherry Lynn Ball, the disappearance and murder of 20-year-old Nancy K. Brown, the disappearance of 18-year-old Tammy Lynn Leppert, and the unidentified Broward County Jane Doe. Which is a lot of, like, things to also be suspected of, and yeah. unfortunately, probably will never be uh, connected to him because obviously because he died during um, mm-hmm. the scuffle with police, he never went to trial. He's never going to be able to ask, be asked any questions about any of this, about the only way that they could connect him to any of this is through DNA. If there's still DNA remaining on these cases, but mm-hmm. because a lot of these are from the eighties, you know, yeah. it's hard to say how many records are still around or degradation of everything. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. Improper storage, all that good stuff. Yeah. Uh, So he hasn't been conclusively linked to any of these, but there are some rather big coincidences there. A lot of it has to do with things like um, it was on his path as he traveled around the country. One of the um, sets of remains were found on a piece of property next to a piece of property that Wilder owned, you know, it's a lot of things like that. Mm-hmm. So who knows? Unfortunately, I don't think a lot of those will be solved, but, um, you know, maybe there's been crazier things that have happened now that, uh, DNA and ancestry has become, become a thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but that is the story of Christopher Wilder. That's fucking nuts, dude. Yeah. It's pretty <laughs> crazy. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. So, like I said, mine's not going to have any murder in it. So, sorry to disappoint you. But it's far more interesting, I think. 
So, you know, I'm like pretty into uh, counterculture things, being oh, yeah. revolutionary and whatnot, all that good stuff. Um, oh, yeah. That's like part of your DNA. <laughs> this, it's just in me. Um, <laughs> my tale will take us down the rabbit hole of the counterculture in the 60s and anti-war protests for Vietnam. Oh my god, I'm so excited. I don't know if I've ever shared this with you, but like the counterculture of the 60s is one of these areas of history that I just find so interesting. It's so, very so interesting. fascinating. There's yeah. so much stuff going on. It's often hard to keep up with. Yes, yeah. So we're going to talk a little bit about the SDS, which is the Students for a Democratic Society, um, their counterculture movement, and what kind of came out of that. So the Students for a Democratic Society was one of the most influential and successful organizations in the fight against the Vietnam War. The SDS was originally part of the Student League for Industrial Democracy, which is another mouthful, um, but they fractured off in 1960. So the first chapter started in Ann Arbor, Michigan at the University of Michigan, and the SDS deviated from this kind of narrow view of American political life at the time to establish a very radical social change that they believed was necessary. They proposed citizen engagement where people educated themselves and enabled changes around issues that were of concern to them. That sounds so radical. It's super radical, man. (laughs) (laughs) Although several founding members of the SDS came from socialist and democratic backgrounds, the SDS as an organization identified itself as an educational and social action organization that brought various political groups together. So they're not trying to pigeonhole themselves into, you know, pick a side kind of a thing. Right, right. This organization um, didn't really gain a lot of traction until the anti-Vietnam War movement began to take hold. So they started well before uh, it began. In 1962, at the organization's first convention, they produced their manifesto that they called the Port Huron Statement. The manifesto decreed that it was, the world is full of disturbing paradoxes, and that the world's wealthiest and strongest country should tolerate anarchy as a major principle of international conduct, that it should allow the declaration, all men are created equal, to ring hollow before the facts of Negro life. That even as technology creates new forms of social organization, it should continue to impose meaningless work and idleness, and with two-thirds of mankind undernourished, that its upper class should revel amidst superfluous abundance. That's a beautiful line. Wow, that is good. In searching for the spark and engine of change, the authors disclaimed any formulas or closed theories. Instead, matured by the horrors of a century in which to be idealistic is to be considered apocalyptic. Students for a democratic society would seek a new left, committed to deliberativeness, honesty, and reflection. That sounds pretty legit. Yeah, it sounds pretty idealistic (laughs) it's one of these things you talk about these radical theories and i'm just like no this just sounds like being a good human exactly which is what they were driving towards really yeah Yeah. so the statement proposed the university with its accessibility to knowledge and an internal openness as a base from which students could look outwards to the less exotic but more lasting struggles for justice the bridge to political power would be built through genuine cooperation 
locally, nationally, and internationally between a new left of young people and an awakening community of allies. It was to stimulate this kind of social movement, this kind of vision and program in campus and community across the country, and that is what the SDS committed themselves to. Okay. So that was a bunch of excerpts out of their Port Huron manifesto, <laughs> kind of smashed all yeah. together. Again, none of this really seems like super out outwardly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, it doesn't seem like super, like, like I said, like, that's so radical. Like, it's not, it's not, though. <laughs> yeah, I mean, to us, it's not. We, <laughs> we aren't coming out of us looking back in 2020. Right, exactly. We aren't coming out of World War II and going into another completely ridiculous war. So, um. oh my God, true. <laughs> true. So this is kind of what they were meaning to adhere to. Now, things started to get a little bit crazy as the Vietnam War ramped up. The organization started off with nine chapters with over a thousand members. The group held a lot of peaceful protests and demonstrations at major corporations and on campuses across the United States. That was until 1967, when the anti-war protests across the U.S. started to take on a more militant angle and became increasingly more violent. You know, Ohio State, all that great stuff, people getting hit oh, with yeah, batons yeah. in the face, um, uh, all that, yeah. all that. I'm having all of the flashes of, like, the standard 1960 protest oh, yeah. images. Yeah. You know, with all the music to go with it. <laughs> oh my God, true. Mm -hmm. Yes. An epic soundtrack. Uh. <laughs> it, you know what? At least the music at the time was good. Yeah. We should make a soundtrack to go along with this episode. <laughs> that would be oh hilarious. Oh my God. That would be oh, hilarious. Geez. Now, in 1968, a pivotal moment occurred that changed the course uh, for some of the members of the SDS. Vicki, are you familiar with the 1968 Democratic National Convention that was held in Chicago? Uh, yes, I am, Janelle. It was only okay. one of, like, I, it really was I this, figured like, you were. <laughs> point in history that was huge. It was a big deal. Mm -hmm. Yeah, not just to us being, you know, in the Illinois area and, uh, you know, people who would interact with these groups, but yeah. on a national level, yeah. it set the stage for... Just this really guttural reaction to the Vietnam War and uh, the way that the nation was going politically. I feel like there's a lot of things ringing true between this time and now, which is why this story was so yes. attractive. It, you know what? <laughs> it really is like a very good parallel between... It really, unfortunately, yeah, yes. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, yes. Uh -huh. Yeah. So the convention, if you're not familiar, I'm going to kind of describe a little bit of some of the things that happened. The convention would be a culminating point in the movement of the anti-war protest across the U.S. For eight days, protests of some varying degree were carried out in the streets of Chicago. You had a lot of major groups coming together, um, like Abby Hoffman and Jerry Rubin with the Youth National International Party. You had the National Mobilization Committee to end the war in Vietnam. You had Women's Strike for Peace, uh, Allen Ginsberg, and of course, the SDS was present. Reportedly, the violence of the protests were incited by a shooting incident between police and Dean Johnson, who was a 17-year-old boy who had um, pulled a gun on police, but the gun had misfired. And um, subsequently, the police still shot him, even though the gun 
was not useful. Okay. And that happened on August 22nd. Um, the following day, a makeshift memorial service was thrown together by SDS members and other groups, which was broken up by police. To be perfectly honest, um, this was kind of like a feeble attempt to incite a little bit of drama into the upcoming protests by the SDS. They really didn't have anything to say about the the individual who died. They just went off on um, you know a tangent about police brutality, which is justified if you know anything about right. the Chicago Police Department, especially in this. Oh time my period. god, it's justified. And it was probably it was probably the worst at this point in time too. Yeah, um, oh, yeah. this would have been like the uh, what's his name Burgess era. Mm-hmm. Was it around that time? Right, John John yeah. Burgess. Yes. Yeah. I mean, this is a little bit earlier, but yes, kind of in that same... But it's okay. still the same yeah. people. <laughs> oh, yeah. So, oh, yeah. This was the arrow of Gestapo-like tactics um, that the Chicago police were taking up. Not much has truly changed. Uh, when I was a teenager, I actually had a run-in with the Chicago Police Department when we went to a show at the Ice Factory in Chicago. Okay. And this was in 2005. And nothing has changed. Describe like the descriptions that I read about how they were like grabbing people. It was like a fucking flashback. Um, oh my god! We went to a we went to a show and we were standing in line on the you know the street corner, and it was a bunch of us, a group of us. And one of the guys um, was dressed in I'm I'm sure you know who I'm talking about short shorts, okay, and a tank top, and was blowing kisses at the police. And they grabbed him out of line and shook him down. Oh, God. <laughs> so, not much has changed, you no. know. It's, nope. It's kind of ridiculous. <laughs> so during that week, other events happened. Like, uh, <laughs> this is probably the most fun part of this whole entire thing. A nomination event occurred for Pegasus, who was a pig that they were trying to get to run as a candidate for president. <laughs> Oh my god, that is like some real anarchist bullshit. I love it. Oh, I love it. Love <laughs> I it so love much. MC Five <laughs> um, played a short and interrupted show in Grant Park. They were the only band that showed up, um, but they were like on the back of a fucking truck, and they tried playing a full set, and it was really intense and weird. And the police immediately shut it the fuck down. Of course, <laughs> of course, can't have any fun at all. Um, on August twenty fourth. A protest led by Allen Ginsberg and the SDS were led into Lincoln Park after the designated curfew. Uh, they marched through the park and up Wells Avenue, blocking traffic and chanting peace now. Eleven people were arrested and the protest was put to a stop. Now, Mayor Richard Daly. Oh, oh Mayor Daly. What a man. What a hero. Oh <laughs> what? what, what? Get out of here. That was Get a joke. out, Tom. Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> you can't see my <laughs> I was face. Like, Girl, it's hard That's to sarcasm. not see your face and record this. <laughs> you can't tell by my inflection that I was kidding. <laughs> I I did, yes. Yes. So he was quoted as saying, Law and order will be maintained. So this really it really echoes the kind of police brutality that was happening during convention week. Um I've been to a lot of protests in my heyday. And I've been to anti-war protests, um, and it's really kind of has this, like, feeling of a powder keg waiting to go off. Yeah. There's, I mean, I went to women's rights rallies, immigration policy protests, uh, a May Day rally, but the most volatile one that I attended was an 
Iraq war protest. And there is this kind of like electricity in the air and you're just waiting for something to to go off. You're waiting for something to happen. It's very like charged. And one person's misstep could make the entire thing explode into chaos. Oh, yeah. And I've seen, you know, there's people who are far more radical and far more into anarchism than I ever was. Um, fully donned in the black with the, you know, bandana over their face. And you can tell by the look in some people's eyes, like they're waiting for that moment. They want that moment to happen where the protest turns into a fucking riot. I thankfully have never been to one that turned into a riot, but there is definitely potential. I think now, like the most modern equivalent we have for this at the moment, obviously the Iraq war protests, but even even now, like in 2020, 2019, 2020, when you're talking about like the Antifa protests, it's a very, oh, yeah. very similar energy. Like it's just a lot of oh, anger yeah. and I get it totally, but it can it can turn really bad really quickly. The difference with those is that there is there's really a definitive two sides to those Antifa yes, protests. Yes. When I was going to the Iraq war protests, like we went down and we marched in front of Boeing and did all that stuff. Um, but there really wasn't like another side. There wasn't other people yelling at us. It was very much a big, massive group of people against everything that was happening at the time. Yeah. So we didn't have that sort of, it was more uh, us and the police, not really like us, the police, and then another group, which right. is what is really happening with the Antifa protests. It's oh, this, yeah, totally. You know, there's three parties involved, and it's very, very toxic. Yes, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So uh, the reactions happening at the convention and other violence on campuses across the U.S. led to some members of the SDS looking at more radical ways of protesting. They really wanted to stop this whole idea of peaceful protests because they uh, some of them felt like it wasn't really doing anything. Which is understandable. Yeah. Um, the notion of peaceful protesting started to seem very childish. It was highly ineffective. So they're like, what can we do to really open people's eyes, man? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so the University of Colorado chapter of the SDS would be at the forefront of this switch in tactics from peaceful protest to radicalization. The SDS chapter carried out and conducted many disruptive activities in Denver in 1968. So I'm going to kind of read through a couple things that happened in Colorado. And <laughs> they're pretty, they're pretty ridiculous. Okay, I am so ready. <laughs> so on July 12th, 1968, dynamite was set off at Elmwood School and the Denver police garage. Damn, I thought you'd be starting off like lighter. I thought it would be like a slow build. It's like, nope, nope, nope dynamite. Zero to 10 fucking dynamite. <laughs> Um, in August of 1968, SDS members were arrested for chaining and locking the new customs building while an induction ceremony took place for selective service members. In November on the 18th in 1968, SDS members took over school buildings in protest and were arrested for burglary. Now, they didn't actually burglarize anything. They went in and obviously moved stuff around and, you know, made a mess, but they didn't steal anything. But that was the only charge that they could really, like, get them on. Of course. And they, of course, they wanted to charge them with something. They This is probably yeah. just, like, grasping at straws to just charge them with anything. Oh, yeah. So in January on the 18th in 1969, an explosion occurred at 5400 Brighton Boulevard. Of course, fucking dynamite again. 
It ruptured two 18,000 storage tanks, 18,000 gallon storage tanks, like exploded all over the place. Oh my God. Was it just like uh, like water storage? Or yeah, just- it was water storage okay. tanks. Oh my God. Still, at least it wasn't molasses. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) I'm having flashbacks to the molasses episode. (laughs) Exactly. I just love it when giant storage tanks explode. (laughs) That has to be in all of my stories. (laughs) I'm sensing a theme here. Yeah. Yes. On January 20th, the legs of a 230,000 electric transmission tower were blown up. Again, fucking dynamite. Oh my God. The tower fell and caused a major power outage. Wow. On January 25th, another electric tower was partially exploded. Uh, 14 sticks of dynamite did not detonate, so only two of the legs of the tower were were blown off. So it's kind of teetering there. Okay. On January 28th, another two electric towers were blown up completely, again with dynamite. Um, So definitely an MO developing. (laughs) What I want to know is where is all of this dynamite coming from and how can I get some? It's actually not that well, – maybe it's a little more difficult now to buy dynamite. But back then in Colorado when they were doing a lot of like mining and creating oh, yeah. roadways, yeah. dynamite was everywhere. That makes sense. <laughs> Out west, it's a little bit more um, lax in their use and accessibility yeah. <laughs> to dynamite. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. David Cameron Bishop, who was a member of the University of Colorado's SDS chapter, was charged with sabotage in specifically the January 20th, 1969 explosion. He was added to the most wanted list at number 300 on April 15th, 1969. So we only ever like see the top 10 guys on the news generally. Yeah. Um, But they actually used to like print out and send the full fucking list to newspapers. Yeah. Yeah. Just remember that. (laughs) Yeah. Now, I was able to obtain some court documents, and I kind of read through them, and I thought this little excerpt was like a really great explanation of the charges and what was happening. Okay. So the court document stated about the incident, participants in the bombings were Bishop, Stephen Knowles, Susan Parker, and Linda Goebel. Parker and Goebel were granted immunity and testified at the trial for the prosecution. The four of them stole dynamite and blasting materials from a Colorado mine. While they were living at a cabin near Idaho Springs, Colorado, Parker and Goebel assisted defendant and Knowles in the preparation of bombs and accompanied them to the towers, which were bombed. In a mine tunnel a short distance up a mountain behind the Idaho Spring cabin, agents of the FBI found boxes of dynamite, blasting materials, and other articles. Circumstantial evidence included fingerprints connecting the defendant with the tower bombings. The defendant's intent to willfully injure the towers was established by the testimony of Parker, Goebel, and two other witnesses. The purpose of the bombings was to create domestic turmoil, which would require the government to bring back troops from Vietnam. The evidence is sufficient to sustain the conviction of the defendant. They were saying that they were doing this purposely because they were hoping it would force the United States to bring back um, troops in order to deal with the situation in the U.S. or just generally speaking. Yes. So causing enough um, disruption by bombing all of these kind of like major areas. And to be honest, what they were doing is there was a bunch of army bases and uh, manufacturing companies in that area that were participating 
in the Vietnam War by making, you know, things for the army and also a training facility. So being in that cursory area was enough cause to be like, okay, well, they're actively trying to attack, you know, government officials and buildings and things like that. Gotcha. Okay. So I put a picture of him in here when he was in school and then when he got caught. So like <laughs> he like changed his appearance pretty greatly. Oh yeah. So Bishop was on the run after uh, he was put on the America's Most Wanted list, um, or the FBI list. <laughs> <laughs> that was that was extra. I love it. I know. Um, but he eventually was captured, but not until 1975. So from 1969 to 1975, he was on wow. the Wow. That is quite a bit of time. Yeah, it's a lot of time. Cameron David Bishop was captured in East Greenwich on March 12th. Police in East Greenwich got a tip that morning about four suspicious-looking men in a car parked near a bank. Bishop was among them. Um, he never actually stood before trial before he was captured. So this is kind of like a just rush him in sort of a thing. We we got it all taken care of and ready to go. Yeah. Um, he was he was brought to trial and sentenced on September nineteenth to seven years. However. They immediately appealed. And Bishop had this amazing fucking lawyer, and this guy did absolute wonders. Okay. Without getting too far into a lot of, like, the federal laws around sabotage during time of war, I'll kind of give you a little bit of a Cliff Notes version on how he was able to um, get that appeal through and get him out of jail. Oh, my God. I can only imagine that, like, the laws around sabotage is just a fucking rabbit hole. (laughs) Oh my God, I can't even tell you how many hours I spent reading about this. It was fucking nuts. I know what I'm doing this afternoon. (laughs) (laughs) So in its ruling, the court said that Bishop had not received the proper notice that his conduct was forbidden by the statute under which he was prosecuted. He was sentenced to seven years in a federal prison, but was free on a $175,000 bond pending the appeal. Bishop was indicted under a 1918 law that outlaws certain conduct when the president has declared a national emergency. The indictment cited a proclamation issued in 1950 by President Truman declaring a national emergency because of the Korean War. The court said that Bishop could not have been expected to know that the Korean War proclamation was still in effect in 1969 because there could have been doubt about whether the nation was in a national emergency in 1969. Bishop was not given proper notice that the actions were illegal. So his conviction under the 1918 Sabotage Act marked only the third conviction under the federal statute in peacetime. So the charges were voided against Bishop, and he couldn't be re-indicted on them. Okay, so basically, it's like um, when presidents declare national emergencies, they have to then, uh, whether it's that president or a future president, go back in and basically undeclare it, right? Yeah. So they have to state that it's over. Right. So, like, if the national emergency, if nobody did that, it's still in effect. So, ju- because he didn't know that. Exactly. Um, and there was not a national emergency declared during the Vietnam War. Okay. Interesting. So, they were still trying to get him on a national emergency declaration from 1950 in 1969. Okay. From a war that was over. 
Okay. <laughs> and just nobody had like gone in and undeclared the national emergency. Exactly. Okay. He got off scot-free. He was released. Um, they did like consider the idea of taking it to the Supreme Court to uh, overthrow it, but they didn't. Um, they just let him go. Yeah. And he went on to live his life with his wife, and he had kids. There's a picture underneath there of him and his, his wife after leaving the court. In very, very 60s garb, like 60s, 70s fashion. Oh, yeah. Like, the most I love delicious, deep collar you could ever see. So, yeah. Oh, my God. So deep. <laughs> so deep. The SDS, um, they eventually, I think it was in the late 70s, they closed up shop there was this major tiff between the organization on on the direction it was supposed to go in the vietnam war had ended they weren't really you know there wasn't enough gusto to get it going again yeah um but there were a couple um factions of it that restarted in 2006 so there are still a few um sds groups out there um there's not a whole lot i think that the name kind of has a certain connotation to it so a lot of people are afraid to use it um, but yeah, that was, that was the tale of David Cameron Bishop and the SDS. Interesting. Up a bunch of shit in Colorado. <laughs> I loved that. That was any little, like, I love things like this that have that little, um, it's almost like a legal loophole. Like it's, oh yeah, that's, I love it. Good. Good job, Janelle. I spent a lot of time reading about sabotage acts. <laughs> <laughs> so... It's yeah. an interesting, interesting thing, but yeah. definitely um, look into it. It's it's a little bit difficult to find information on um, Cameron Cameron David Bishop without doing an in-depth research of the SDS because he never went to jail for it. And there was such this like legal sort of gymnastics happening with his case. But it's very interesting. There was an article that I read about a, a, a law – school doing kind of an exploration more about sabotage laws and incited this case so it was very very interesting yeah that i loved that so if you guys are trying to stay off the fbi's most wanted list and need something to pass your time why not check out this podcast hi i'm april and i'm steph and we're from the first podcast do you like pop culture news reviews and discussion have you ever ventured into the world of celebrity fan accounts on Instagram? Do you also admit to a reading erotic fan fiction as a teenager or even as an adult? Can you list at least five of Harry Styles' questionable tattoos? Then and we're, we're the, the podcast, podcast for you. you! Every few weeks we get together and talk about what we're enjoying or what we're looking forward to in the world of TV, film, music and more. You can find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher by searching for The Thirst Podcast. And you can also find us over on Twitter at The Thirst or on Instagram at The Thirst Pod. Listen to an episode and let us know what you think. Bye. Bye. All right, guys, that has been our show for today. Thank you so much for joining us and bearing with us through this new um these apocalyptic times experimental <laughs> way of recording i cannot wait until we're back yeah. in the studio to be honest with you i know for real guys stay inside i want to do stuff this summer yes <laughs> yeah and speaking of stuff to do this summer we do still have an event coming up in july hopefully if there's any hopefully if there's if there's any changes to this we will let you know um however mm -hmm. we are going to be in kansas city missouri on july 
11th and 12th for the True Crime Podcast Festival. Whoop, 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 whoop. whoop, whoop. Um, we also have something happening in the fall, too. Yes. Hopefully. <laughs> yeah. So for the True Crime Podcast Festival in July, you can go to tcpf2020.com for more information on that and any updates, if dates are changing or anything. Just keep an eye on that. We'll try and let you guys know. But Janelle, do you want to tell us about our exciting new uh, event that's happening in August? September. <laughs> September? Yeah. It's in Did you say August? You said August. <laughs> It's in I September. know, but I think you said August. No, it's September. It's okay. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah. In September, my bad. Yeah. So um, in September, we will be at the Elgin Fringe Festival doing a live show for your viewing pleasure. Um, once we have the exact dates, uh, we'll let you know. I'm not sure if we're going to do more than one show. I think we're just doing one show, but... The Fringe Festival is this amazing event in downtown Elgin. There's all kinds of things going on for an entire weekend. Um, you can find out more information at elginfringefestival.com, but that's still on the books. It's still ready to go. Hopefully, <laughs> we will still have yeah. everything. <laughs> we have worked with them. We did a, uh, we were part of the Elgin Mini Fringe in January, I think. Um, yes. And it was it was really fun. It was a very good time. So I'm really looking forward to working with them again. Um, yes. Again, as we have information that's available, but we'll let you guys know. But if you're into the wacky and weird, there's something for everybody. Oh, totally, totally. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that's mm-hmm. stuff you could do. That's a thing. That's a thing. Yeah. Keep yeah. keep watching our social media. You know, we've been doing a couple random yeah, we've, things we've, and putting stuff up for free so people are occupied. Yes, yeah, I hope that to continue doing some of these live streams, it's been really fun to kind of interact with some people in real time. Yeah. We're still new to this whole world of doing stuff uh, live online. So mm-hmm. it's been quite the experiment, but yeah. Um, <laughs> It's been very, very fun. So yeah. it's hopefully. nice to hear you guys and or see your faces in some way. Exactly. So. Yes. We hope we hope to do more for you, our lovely audience. Yes. Uh, Janelle, do you have anything before we finish up here? Nope. I just stay inside. Keep listening to podcasts. Uh, order as much stuff locally as you can. All that fun stuff. <laughs> yes. Oh, my gosh. Um mm-hmm. On that note, we will say our sound and editing is by Tiff Fullman. Our music is by Jason Zakshevsky, the Enigma. (laughs) (laughs) Dang it. I did it for you. (laughs) I was just going to keep going. (laughs) Uh, This has been the Bad Taste Crimecast. We will see you in two weeks. Stay safe and goodbye. Bye. as if a wave of evil washed over this town. We are all people in some form or another. <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, that wasn't a total disaster. <laughs>